Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a battle over a historic house in Dorchester. Berkshire Bank comes to Boston, and a Boston mayoral candidate alleges fraud by two other candidates. It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, the Roxbury International Film Festival showcases multiculturalism through its wide range of films created by people of color telling the stories of people of color. But first, joining me in the studio, Gin Dubshus, State House reporter for Mass Live. Hello again, Gin. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Lauren Dzinski, reporter for Politico, Massachusetts, and editor of the Politico, Massachusetts Playbook. Welcome back, Lauren. Hi. And Jennifer Smith, staff reporter for the Dorchester Reporter. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Kelly. I'm glad to have all three of you here. And I'm starting with you, Jennifer, because uh, you've got a couple housing stories that are of interest. Um, I first want to start with the one about problem properties. And I think a lot of people can relate to this as we've been looking, actually, around the world, not just in the United States, where these abandoned or maybe vacant properties are at risk for becoming fire hazards or having other problems. And in Dorchester, you're trying to figure out how to deal with this. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because one of the first questions everyone just asks is, where are these? Mm. You know, you always see that one property that's on the corner and you say that's been there for a while sagging. It's not looking so great. Some people are hanging out on the porch. We don't know what they're doing there, but nobody's supposed to be living there. Are we the only people with this in our neighborhood? And the answer is a little bit more complicated because there isn't really a way for the average person to track where they are. You can look at internal lists for the fire department, but those often work as a warning. So they basically track whether or not a house is unsafe to be in if you're fighting a fire, but that can just as soon mean they're missing a staircase because they're under construction Mm -hmm. um, as much as this house burned out 10 years ago and hasn't been repaired since. So even just getting a handle on the idea of where are these dangerous abandoned properties can be a little bit tricky. The city has a system in place that it calls the problem properties list, which is any property where four instances are recorded. So like four police complaints, four health or uh, noise complaints, that'll get you onto this problems property list and police, ISD uh, or inspectional services and public health will come in and monitor and try and fix things up. But for a house that's just kind of abandoned and sitting around, the city can be a little bit limited because if it's just boarded up and doesn't pose any risk and if the taxes are getting paid, then that house isn't technically abandoned. It's just vacant and it just sits around. So, so let, you can't let, do and let me stop you there to yeah. get you to emphasize that because there's a difference between abandoned and vacant. And exactly. you're making that distinction now. Right. But it's hard to tell from yeah. the outside. As yeah, you say. of course. If you see a house that's boarded up, you have no way of knowing that. And so when the city is trying to 
get a handle on these properties, a big thing that they really emphasize is don't assume that everything's fine. Like, call them. Use the Boston 311 app. Call the Inspectional Services Department because they can really drag down a neighborhood. There is a, a nightmare property for a lot of residents on Mount Ida Road in the Ronan Park neighborhood of Dorchester that actually caught fire in 2006 and still hasn't been repaired. So all of the neighbors with this gorgeous view of this park are horrified because you've got this gutted, mm. burned out house and it just keeps getting tied up in court and it sat around for about a decade. So it really does end up a drag on resources for the city and also a drag on property values. And one more question before I get uh, Lauren and again to weigh in, and that is the whole fire possibility. Because yeah. in a couple of places in your in your story, you, you noted that there had been some fires in it. And now you just mentioned one property. Mm-hmm. But now that we've seen this become more and more of a problem, as I said, around the world and in the country, it's pretty scary then, I would imagine, in the neighborhoods. Right. It definitely is. So uh, one woman in that, again, Ronan Park area said there was one house that actually caught fire three different times Mm. in the 13 years that she was there. And it just kept being an issue. It would be burned out and then rebuilt and burned out and rebuilt. And the most that the fire department can really do is just keep noting it on that list that it continues Mm. being a risk. If another fire happens, you need to get into that house somehow. Mm. Yeah. That's my guest, Jennifer Smith. She's a staff reporter for the Dorchester Reporter. Again, are you hearing about problem properties anywhere else? I have to confess that I note them, but I hadn't really thought about their potential danger as much as I have now, given some of the recent news stories. Well, I think Dorchester functions as a microcosm. It's the largest neighborhood in Boston. And I, when I was a Dorchester reporter, I wrote about problem properties, too. The, under Mayor uh, Menino, they started that problem properties list. Uh, he dispatched his top aide at the time, Michael Knevey, to handle that list. This is always something that's been a problem. And part of that is it was especially acute in the 2000s when there were a lot of bank-owned properties. There were a lot of foreclosures. And there's only so many times you try to reach out to the bank and the bank doesn't really care. And then you also have property owners who live, you know, they own they own the house that's falling apart in Boston, but they live in Weston. So you also have the absentee owners. So it's just it's a problem in, in many places. And I think for Boston and a lot of cities, the best that they can do is mitigate it because there's only so many um, municipal powers they have. It might have to be something that's figured out at the legislative level uh, on Beacon Hill. Lauren, there's no way for you to know this, but I'm thinking to myself, because Boston is an old city, I mean, we have a lot of old houses that we're more susceptible to end up with a lot of problem properties, I'm using air quotes, than maybe other places. For sure. And I I think that the way that the city is set up, the way that it's structured, the way that these neighborhoods look, it's not like this is a grid system that was, you know, developed like we see more in the Midwest and Western parts of the country. These are winding roads with dead ends and perhaps there's a house tucked into some random spot and it's even just anecdotally, it kind of makes sense that something could kind of slip through the cracks. And I think that collecting all of this information into this kind of data and, you know, using that information is a step in the right direction. But yeah, I mean, you know, everyone else has identified there's there's really no easy solution for something like this. But I think we're going to have to deal with it. Now, Jennifer, I mentioned that you had, there was a couple stories. The other one uh, had to do with confusion about historic houses. And again, here we are in Boston and we're history everywhere. So what's the confusion here about this particular housing rehab in Ashmont Hill? Yeah. So Mm. so this 
this is this is kind of a fascinating example of what happens when people who care very much about their history end up in a neighborhood with very unclear zoning. So Boston takes its history very seriously, which means that there are these neighborhood districts that don't mean that a house is a particular landmark. It's not like a famous person necessarily lived in it so it's protected or was designed by a famous architect, but that the neighborhoods as a whole have this kind of historically relevant character. And so the fact that that exists means that there is supposed to be an additional level of protection if someone comes in and decides to rehabilitate one of these houses so that it stays consistent with that neighborhood. And so what happened here on Alban Street is you've got this 1880s house. It's a little traditional two-family. It was briefly transformed into a three-family, and it was sold off. And the folks that decided to go through and convert it and rehabilitate it weren't really clear on this zoning thing. So they got a short-term work permit, which should have been fine to just kind of fix up the interior, um, not really Did they do know it. it was historic at all? That's what's so interesting yeah. is they knew the house was historic, but they didn't know that that should trigger an okay. additional step. So mm. they were approved to do some work on the inside. And a neighbor who is actually a member of the Dorchester Historical Society, and Gin and Lauren are both familiar with them, um, <laughs> was walking by and suddenly noticed this whole house is stripped. Like there are two chimneys. Mm that are gone, all of the wow. siding is gone, all that's left is the porch. Wow. And she, of course, immediately panics, calls uh, inspectional services, and they send an inspector out and stop work because it turned out that they had gone on and done some exterior work, not realizing that the Landmarks Commission should have been brought in wow. to help out with design. And all of the neighbors agree that this was probably an innocent mistake, but it really does raise the question of you've got these incredibly vague zoning requirements for historic properties, and it makes a big impact on the neighborhood when one of these houses suddenly gets overhauled. Wow. Well, I have a feeling there should be some more looking around the, the city on top of that. That was just interesting to me. I'm going to move on, to Lauren, to this piece that people are now mad at me for talking about, but I just keep chewing over it because it makes me mad. And that's the replacement of the toll takers and the toll booths with these gantries. You know, yes, yes, I'm not a Luddite, but I just hated it. And now, as the Boston Herald has been blowing it out of the water with these investigations it's been doing over a period of time. There is no savings of money. Actually, I pointed this out in a commentary about a year ago that it didn't think it, they were going to save the $50 million. Now, explain why really it's not happening now. So initially, under then-Governor Deval Patrick, basically the entire pitch to get rid of the tolls and the toll takers and to replace them with electronic gantries was to basically say that there was going to be something like $50 million in savings. We come to find out now that that savings was largely overblown. I think the actual uh, sum was something like $5 million. $5 million. yes. Right. It's a but, huge difference. But the, but the other part of the argument is that, okay, this changes up traffic, you know, there won't be like backups, things like that, whatever. At the end of the day, the benefit, at least cost-wise, that was stated with these toll booths and, and changing them out didn't actually necessarily come to fruition. And, and that's kind of the thrust of this story. Well, they've also done some investigative work to, to demonstrate that the system is not catching all the people that are supposed to. And actually, in the around the Newton area, those people are ending up paying more for tolls than they did under the old system, according to the work that they've done, which they are not happy with, as you can imagine. They're, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> they're getting kind of extra penalized again. You well, know? in, in you know? Newton, I believe what, <laughs> what the state did was they restored a toll that was taken down uh, sometime in the 90s, perhaps under Governor Bill Weld. 
and it's part of an overall revenue picture for them. The Baker administration has been, they've been pretty upfront about saying this is this is not so much a cost saving as it's supposed to reduce congestion. And it sounds like it anecdotally it has. Um, but they sold it on a cost saving. They did. Well, okay. the, the, the Patrick right. administration did. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this is also something that more and more states are doing, more and more states are, are looking at. The big concern that, that I think has kind of flown a little bit uh, under the radar has been out of state scoff laws. The people who from Connecticut, from New Hampshire, New York, who go through these tolls and then don't pay. And because the, the Massachusetts does not have uh, reciprocation agreements with some of these states, mm. these people can keep not paying. I believe last last I checked, the state, Massachusetts is still trying to sign documents with those states that basically say, if we reach out to you about a scoff law uh, that is not paid tolls in our state, can you please suspend their license or can you take some steps so that they end up paying us? And that's still a work in progress. And I think overall, this whole move to all electronic tolling, as it's called, is still a work in progress. The tolls are still coming down. Baker administration says it is ahead of schedule. And I think that's part of the overall administration mantra of under-promise, over-deliver. And, and this, I think, certainly fits that mold. But I would say overall, it, it's been... It could have been a lot worse. Oh, well, that's a big praise. <laughs> Woo, whippy. Well, it could have been a lot worse. Praise, yeah. That is one thing that they that they pointed out is they took out about 500 toll workers and um, it cost about $11.9 million, and they budgeted for 17.8. So technically under right. the wire there. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, they said they sweetened the pot a little bit for some of the pensions and whatever with for people they bought out, some of the toll workers and all of that. And, and they did yeah. provide some yeah. training or some education for folks who wanted to work at the Department of Transportation, move exactly. on, to, move into other jobs, which is, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where toll takers, you know, they're going kind of the way of lamplighters, right? What's interesting, though, is that in Maine, I talked to the Maine Turnpike guy uh, last year, and he said it's actually not worth the money for them them to completely eliminate the human collectors. Hello. Uh, I've been saying that for but go ahead. Well, he, he, <laughs> quote the main people. He, he said he uh, well he said from the way that the, the way their system is structured, they still make more money by having that one person. Now having that one person, even if they go mostly all electronic tolling, having that one person will still collect enough money to more than pay that person's salary and benefits. In Massachusetts, because of the way the system is structured and because also land is more expensive in Massachusetts, basically everything's more expensive yeah. in Massachusetts. That's why the Maine Turnpike director said it makes sense for Massachusetts to do this. It doesn't necessarily make sense for Maine to do it. Well, two things. Again, in an earlier report by the Boston Herald, and by this way, the piece that we're discussing now is by Matt Stout, just to give credit. I don't, I can't remember if he did some of the other reports. Their system of grabbing folks, I'm talking Massachusetts folks, let's, let's put aside the other people that are getting through. They get the license wrong, and so they're billing people who didn't do anything, and then they're not billing people who did do something. It's a big old mess. That's not straight. And until recently, their customer service was all messed up so that you couldn't even get an answer to what the hell was going on. And let me just say, I know I'm only one little old car, but I have not been on a toll road since the electronic entries came in. I have the luxury of going around, but because I do not wish to be 
under the system. And, and there's a little personal protest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's definitely, we actually did a post uh, last year when this came out about ways no. to get a free ride on this, uh, on, on the turnpike. <laughs> oh and it was very popular. Is there a, is there a <laughs> Google yeah, Maps setting takeaway? The, there you yeah. go. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are again, Doomshus talking about getting free rides on the Massachusetts Tollway <laughs> <laughs> of Mass Live, Lauren Dzinski of Politico, and Jennifer Smith of the Georgester Reporter. And we're talking about stories you may have missed from this week's news. So, again, speaking of you, this is a very interesting piece about the Civil Service Commission rejecting an attorney's request for the investigation of Springfield's police review board. And I looked at this in the larger context of police review board in Boston and what uh, Mayor Walsh is doing and what's happening here. There's obviously always a lot of pushback against police officers, and this is at the heart of this controversy in Springfield. It is. And, and it's fascinating to watch because in Boston, Mayor Walsh recently expanded the review board. He also put in place a more neutral process for filing a complaint, which I think from a public perspective, it can be intimidating to make a report to a police department. And and you might have some skepticism about whether it's actually going to get followed up. And what's interesting about Springfield, I feel if this was happening, if this type of thing was happening in Boston, it would be getting a lot more play. But because it's in Springfield, it's definitely flying uh, a little bit under the radar. And what's happening in Springfield is uh, my colleague, Dan Glan has been reporting on this. The police review board has been under fire from almost all sides here. And the mayor, Mayor Dominic Sarno, he reconstituted the board. He had to make them more transparent after Mass Live reported that the, the Springfield Police Review Board hadn't issued a report in two years, which is crazy when you think about it. Yes, um, particularly during these days and times. Especially, mm-hmm. especially during these days and times. Mm-hmm. And my colleague Dan has been great in reporting about an incident that happened in 2015 outside of a bar. You had off-duty officers uh, get into a fight, injure a man, and that's still ongoing, the legal proceedings involved in that. And what one of the attorneys for the uh, for one of the police officers is questioning the legitimacy of the police review board, saying they can't do this to police officers. They're not a legitimate body. And it's a fascinating approach. It's a fascinating legal tactic. I mean, obviously, as, a, as an attorney, you got to do whatever you can for your client. Mm-hmm. But it's just something to watch where in this day and age, we need more neutral arbiters to look at these types of high tension situations. Yeah. A body camera is not a panacea and neither is a neutral arbiter, but they're going to help. And they should uh, be on a more level playing field than they are rather than being attacked by all sides. And you say when you say that they're going to help, they're going to help both sides, because when the body camera is employed correctly and we see the video that can offer protection for the officer as well. So, you know, I've always been one that thinks that these police review boards were important to have an outside voice and a community voice as a part of it. But they've always been difficult in every community. I don't know one that there hasn't been some tension around it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, and another thing to bring up as well is if this complaint goes through and it does invalidate the review board, it's been in operation for about a decade. So yeah. then you're looking at about a decade of decisions that this board has been making or ruling on um, on officers' behavior that then the question is, do you have to go back? Does that invalidate those rulings? Um, is it an Annie exact- Dukin kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the real right. question is, you know, it's been in operation. So if they determined that it was not legitimate, what's the next step for all of those cases in the past? Well, I, you know, this may sound like a small story to people, but I think that there should be a lot of paying of attention to this because whatever happens here is going to have some reverberations, not just in Springfield, but other places as well. 
All right, let's talk about this story that I'm very interested in. Mary Franklin, never heard of her, but she was running to or trying to run for Boston mayor, and she didn't get her 3,000 verified signatures. Now, she says the reason she didn't get it is two of the other candidates, even though they used the same companies to gather signatures, the way they phrased the question somehow put her at a disadvantage. Is this more than a case of sour grapes, Jennifer, or... I mean, I never heard this before. So this, can they change the question? It's very interesting. So this is, there's actually no good answer to that. Um, (laughs) But there there is a question. Mm -hmm. Um, She raised this a little bit more vaguely when talking with Sue O'Connell. Um, a few weeks ago, but didn't name any names. On NECN, On NECN, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then this past week, she put out a letter that was then distributed through um, some local mother's advocacy programs. Uh, So Mary Franklin, his background, um, has been a local advocate on community violence, just general equity issues as well. Mm -hmm. So what she's saying is basically that these two candidates, Joseph Wiley and William King, both used a signature collecting company, uh, which is legal, and sent them out to areas where there were a lot of disenfranchised registered voters wandering around and asked them to sign a petition for high rents rather than signing a petition to put them on their respective ballots. So Joseph Wiley is a candidate for mayor and uh, William King is a candidate for at-large city council. Now, to get onto these ballots, respectively, you need 3,000 verified signatures to get onto the mayoral ballot ballot. You need 1,500 to get onto the at-large ballot. And once someone signs on as a signatory for one of these offices, their signature doesn't count for anyone else down that line. Once you've been verified for Wiley, you're then no longer valid if you're also a married Right. So you can't count yourself on three ballots. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. what her argument is, basically, if it's a sour grapes argument alone, it's basically saying there were only so many people that I was going to get to sign for my ballot, which is citywide. So that's a little bit of a suspect claim. And therefore, they took it away from me. Got it. So, Lauren, this is in your wheelhouse. What do you think? Is this sour grapes or something more? I mean, it's tough. Uh, Mm -hmm. These two candidates apparently had the resources to uh, hire an outside firm. That's not cheap to collect these signatures, whereas uh, Mary Franklin apparently didn't have the resources to do that. Uh, If you're one person or just using your friend network to collect 3,000 signatures to run for mayor, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of investment. Um, 3,000 verified signatures. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, and, you know, most campaigns will go far beyond that to basically account for the the crossover there. The one thing that I will say with regard to Mary Franklin, her name has been in the mix as a potential mayoral candidate, maybe not necessarily in the like total public mm-hmm. knowledge of all of this, but for people who who really closely follow this stuff, she's kind of a known entity. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of surprising that she didn't get her resources aligned, even if she wasn't going to pay signature gatherers mm-hmm. uh, to actually collect all of that. Right. So it's it's two things, basically. One of them is the question of whether or not she should have had the resources to get those 3,000 mm-hmm. signatures. And another, and of course, the mayor office and his administration right now says the elections department and the legal department have her letter and are looking into it. So there are two questions, whether or not unethical campaign tactics were used and also whether that should even matter if you're just trying to lock down 3,000 signatures. Does this in any way, uh, again, put signature gathering, you know, the companies that do it under any kind of spotlight or no? Or we won't know until after they go through the investigation. I'd say they probably, we'll probably find out more after, after the investigation. I mean, these things have been 
you know, they, they, they make pretty good money. Uh, I've yeah. seen them outside train stations, you know, the stop and shops. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, they're trying to get those signatures. Trust. Yeah. I've been, you know, <laughs> they're very you feel like they're, they're coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, wh- whether whether it's signature gatherers or, or uh, uh, volunteers, it's a demonstration of strength of your organization mm-hmm. or the amount of money that you have to spend. And if you can't get 3,000 signatures, I, th- I think that says more about you than it does about the other people there. Uh, I will say that Mayor Walsh did propose changing that rule where it says if you sign for one, that means the rest of your signatures. If you sign others, they're negated uh, because they're, um, somebody got that signature verified first. I think he did try to change that. Uh, he, it was submitted. Oh, that's right. I remember um, this yeah, vaguely. Yeah. But, uh, I, and then it, they it never, I think it might have died in the legislature yeah. because it was one of those things where it has oh. to be approved by the legislature. And it died right there. Uh, but it was one of the things he proposed when yeah. he ran in 2013. And he did, I believe, propose it uh, when he got into office. I, I think it cleared the, the city council, but never, but, but died in the legislature. And if you think about it, uh, if I'm a, ver- I'm a potential verified signature for a number of people and, I, you know, nobody's running yet, you're just hoping to run. Why mm. can't I say, I, well, I don't mind if you hope if you run. I can support that. And I don't mind if you run. But now when the race comes on, I might make a different choice right. uh, because you're so but you know of course that means that for the people who voted against that or let it die in the legislature they know they can get 3,000 signatures and they're <laughs> they're trying to make sure other people do not so it can be an go. incumbent protection measure for sure <laughs> I think that's right because right, it's basically saying whether or not right. one person should have the power to just nominate right. multiple people not that you're committed to voting for them right um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with reporters Gin Dumpschus, Lauren Dzinski, and Jennifer Smith. Now, Lauren, speaking of incumbent protection, this guy, um, Richard Neal, people are mad. Yes, Congressman. Congressman Sorry. Yes, they're pretty mad at him because it feels as though this is an ongoing complaint in many communities. But this story that, uh, in the Weekly Advocate is pretty interesting that he's ignored a significant part of his constituency, that being the rural folks. And in fact, that the reason that he keeps being re-upped every year is because of his strength in the urban areas. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Congressman Richard Neal, for those who aren't familiar, he represents the furthest west district in Massachusetts. Uh, He's held the seat for a long time. He's now actually a ranking member of Ways and Means, which is an extremely powerful committee down in Washington. And what fascinates me is that he has held the seat for a long time and you have all of these constituents outside of Springfield or there's there's a number of them outside of basically the area where he was mayor for a while who are saying, you know, we can't his office is not responsive. Constituent services, you know, are just not up to snuff as some of the other Western members of Congress. Uh, Jim McGovern is, is an example, and he represents uh, Worcester and kind of areas in that. But it, one of the difficult things about being a member of Congress and serving in Washington and also attempting to serve your district is constituent services and, and really you know, your strength is really reliant upon the people who work for you. And so to what extent are you prioritizing these constituent services? And so so there are a number of people who, uh, as reported in the story, uh, are saying that he is not responsive. His people are not getting back to him, certainly not to the extent of, of these other members of the delegation. Well, the reporter, Dave Eisenstatter, and again, this is in the, I said weekly advocate, it's Valley Advocate, are saying, are comparing him with Worcester Democrat James McGovern, saying he's got a big you know, area. He seems to make sure that he 
touches base or his staff does with everybody. He's very responsive. And so that's a stark difference with uh, Richard Neal. Neal seems to think he doesn't have an issue, maybe because he keeps getting reelected. And the, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So to, to a certain extent, there's that. Uh, the, the story also uh, breaks down graphically the composition of the district itself and how one of the biggest segments in the district is of voters comes from Springfield, which is uh, where Neal is from and he, what he knows best. And so just mathematically, and, you know, this is this is pessimistic to think about it that way, but, you know, the story does kind of uh, make that argument. Even if he continues to just prioritize or mainly prioritize issues in Springfield and kind of, you know, do what he can in other areas, but, you know, really prioritize Springfield, that's where most of the votes are. So mm. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I guess so. But I have to say that I'm very admiring of those congresspersons who do make an effort across the area in which they represent. And, you know, we we know some names of folks who have done that and sort of set an example. So anyway, we'll be keeping an eye on Congressman Neal and see what happens. The banking situation in Boston is ever changing again. And now we have Berkshire Bank looking to... Um, take its uh, new headquarters into Boston after they take over the Worcester Commerce Bank. I'll admit, you know, the la- my last change in mine was Santander. I just got that all settled. And there were 15 other changes before. What does this mean that they are entering into Boston and they've taken over the Worcester Commerce Bank? Well, the, uh, the Boston Business Journal uh, actually had a, had a good piece recently where they're basically they're trying to make a play to be the next fleet. Um, oh, and they're trying. They're, it's it's oh, a very aggressive play. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so so it's um, they're taking over uh, 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 Worcester Worcester's Commerce Bank. Um, they're keeping the name in, uh, in Worcester actually because they feel commerce has great uh, uh, name penetration um, penetration in the area. Uh, but they are making a big play for Boston so much that they're moving um, uh, a good chunk of their operations there. And they are looking at the seaport, the the, the hottest uh, real estate market right now in the area. Just like um, Dallas. Yeah. Just like yeah. Dallas. Yeah. With some of the same architecture to boot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, it's it's a it's a fascinating look because the, they're, uh, you kind of look around at how many banking operations there are. And there's a lot. You know, you've got East Boston Savings. Yeah. Uh, you, you've got uh, a couple of South Shore places that are making a play into into Boston, and we're looking at a, at a pretty crowded market on top of Santander and, and Bank of America. Um, and uh, uh, Berkshire Bank says, you know, like they, they see they see Boston as a potential growth market for them. They already have like a, a, a small, uh, was it uh, ATM or little office in, in the financial district post office square. Oh. Um, and, and they want to they want to make a bigger play. And uh, it's going to be something that's fascinating to watch. It could be one of the, the business stories to, to watch over the next year and a half if this if this merger and, and, and push gets approved. Well, there's a couple threads going here. First, the hotness of the Seaport District, and um, and then the second is that they're trying to become maybe uh, the new fleet, which has been got long gone. But what happened to the movement, Jennifer, of small banking? Um, you know, there was a whole pushback uh, a few years ago where people said, I'm out, no Bank of America for me, I'm done with these fees, the, the lack of respect, blah, blah, blah. And people made a concerted effort to move away from some of these conglomerates or what they perceived to be conglomerates and went to local. Now, I personally have always gone local because I'm Cambridge 
Um, <laughs> I'm in Cambridge, well, and I like my well, banks. So uh, well, Cambridge it, Trust. What's uh, interesting mm-hmm. uh, is a lot of these big banks are actually trying to boost their community cred in a way. So mm-hmm. they're saying, um, you know, they've got uh, if they're taking over the the Worcester section, like they're saying that they have a strong presence there. They don't need to worry about market overlap from there in Boston. They don't need to transform themselves in that way. And so, with a lot of these bigger banks, uh, what they're basically trying to do right now is say we may be a conglomerate but for you we want to be your local bank so Ooh, very it's, clever, it's, Jennifer. It's, all, it's almost right. The ad, girl. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> call me. No, um, no. But but that's the thing is it's basically um, an issue of saying that people don't need to worry about whether or not they have presence in other cities and other areas because what a consumer should be focusing on is how well they're serving the people that they're actually interacting with on a day-to-day and the actual size of the bank should be irrelevant. So if they're doing a good community service level interaction, that should be what counts. And that's what they tend to be pushing. Well, that's very interesting because as you said that, then I started thinking about Eastern Savings Bank, which has a huge presence in community activities. Mm -hmm. They've made that part of who they are. And so they stand apart. Yeah, no, in this community, lots of people understand. And for a variety of, you know, programs and subject matter. Lauren, you were nodding your head when I was asking about what happened to the small banks. No, 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 it, it made me think back to uh, like 2008, 2010, where, yes, it was absolutely a strong pushback to Bank of America. Um, I know I actually... uh, like opened up a checking account at like my local my local um uh credit union just because it it was the right thing to do at the time now not so much i'm a, I'm a bank of america person. oh well, thank you. not <laughs> me cambridge trust all the way keep it's, going there's, there's so many atms <laughs> i i fall victim to the atms oh, so um but no but but i think that jennifer brings up a really good point of this kind of feeling and need to be a part of the community and to represent the community while maybe they have a lot of locations in other different places. And I think that the the Worcester uh, acquisition speaks to that, right? You you keep the name, but you're still you're far bigger than you were before, but you still get to keep kind of the local roots and the local ties. Okay, well, this is going to be very interesting. Yes, Ken, you no, want to I was add? just going to add, I, I, I have the same issue uh, with Bank of America. I it's, it's the convenience, but my wife, actually, she left Santander because she was so frustrated with their bad service. Mm. Um, she went to Metro Credit Union, mm. and one of the big uh, things that she likes about Metro Credit Union is that they uh, cover ATM fees. Yes. Mm. So she can yes. go uh, so that kind of eliminates the convenience uh, factor of Bank of America, right? Like because she can go to any ATM, she doesn't mm-hmm. have to worry about paying the ATM fee, um, and she can withdraw from any place. Uh, and she loves Metro Credit. Union. And this yeah, is my, not a paid advertisement. Same way, yeah. That's that's a big one. Um, just the the ATM fees are absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 understand that because of some of the changes happening now in Washington, some of that consumer act that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was uh, connected with pushing through might be rolled back. She's been, in fact, making a lot of comments about alerting um, consumers, hey, that which is on your credit card bills or your bank statements that you have now begun to take for granted was not always thus. Um, that just got into play. And now they see an, the, some of the banks see an opportunity to lobby against it and bring it back. And so in a minute, it doesn't ma- may, may not matter wherever you are, you'll be paying some of these fees because the banks will not have the flexibility to determine what what fees they want to charge you for or not. And, you know, and you won't know. Well, you'll know if she has anything to do about it. But, you know, <laughs> we'll be but, covering exactly. all of it. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me. And um, 
We always have a lively discussion when you're here, and there's always much more to discuss, so I look forward to having you back. Thank you for having us. <laughs> okay. Yen Dupchis is the State House reporter for Mass Live. Lauren Dzinski is a reporter for Politico, Massachusetts, and the editor of the Politico, Massachusetts Playbook. And Jennifer Smith is a staff reporter for the Dorchester Reporter. Coming up, you can expect a wide variety of films at this year's Roxbury International Film Festival. From bone marrow transplants for biracial people to the untold stories of a famous funk band and immigrant rights, that's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley.